morning instead. I told you I was going to uh, call this the dark side of testing, and just uh, as you can see, it's not called that. We're just calling it the response to testing, because uh, the big idea behind all of this is a simple question that if you have heard enough Sunday school lessons, and if you have read the Bible enough or heard enough preaching, you probably already know the answer. But the question is this, whose fault is it when I fail? Uh, you've heard the old adage, if at first you don't succeed, blame it on someone else, right? That's how, that's how we normally act, right? If I fail, it must have been your fault. You didn't give me enough opportunity. I wasn't ready. Uh, I didn't know, was it one, two, three, go, or is it go on three? And so it's, it's not my fault that I failed. Uh, if you've ever worked in education, you worked with students, uh, it's amazing how many different excuses can be, uh, can be created because a student did poorly on, on a test or on a quiz. And, and I, I had uh, working with uh, parents as well as students, I heard lots of uh, excuses on why I didn't do as good as I should have. It's usually the teacher's fault. It's the book's fault. Uh, I remember one of the parents that, that uh, had uh, in that I had he had four kids in school, and in every grade uh, that that there was uh, that ch- uh, a child from that family, you knew who was getting the highest grade in that class, uh, and so everyone was just competing for second place. But Dad told me one time we were talking about his philosophy to education. He told me he said all the answers are in the book, so there's no reason why you shouldn't get an A on the test. And I thought you know I like that. I know that math it's not like an answer; it's a process and all that. But his idea was. You, you, everyone's given the same opportunity. It's not like they're hiding these things from you and trying to make you fail. You should do well. You should succeed. In the Christian life, though, we don't necessarily get a grade uh, like we would have in school, but we still fail nonetheless. As we looked at uh, the first part of James, as he talks about various trials and temptations, we, we see that it happens in our lives. It happens from time to time. Maybe you're going through something right now, and maybe you just come out of something, or maybe uh, you're not going through anything at all, but we have to assume and know for sure that it is going to happen sooner than we think. So the, the, the point of these next few verses are to answer the question, uh, whose fault is it when and if I fail? Now, I don't have to fail, but I do sometimes. We do fail sometimes at the trials and the tests that come our way. We saw last week that God sends them sometimes, and uh, sometimes they're not from God, but they are all allowed by God, and they are all uh, uh, potentially beneficial to me. They can perfect me if I persevere through them, if I have patience, if I endure through my trial, uh, there is, uh, there, it reveals something that it was lacking in my life, and by persevering through the trial, I am perfected or fill in. Those gaps in my life are filled in, and I, and, I, and I realize I am better off, not because of the trial, but because I persevered through the trial, and I am better off for it. So this morning, real simply... I can respond to testing in two different ways. In the last week we looked at this one, but verse 12 uh, tells us again the benefits of this first response, and it's simply to endure. Verse number 12, 
Blessed is he. All right, there we go. My pages keep turning. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised him to love him. So that's my first option. If I'm in a test, I can endure. I can stick it out. Put my head down and just grit my teeth and not say, hey, I'm so happy this is happening to me, but I'm here, so I might as well make the most of it. There's got to be something from this. There's got to be some sort of benefit that can come from this, and so I'm going to, I'm going to endure it. I'm going to stick it out. Uh, obviously, God knows that I'm. God knows where I am, and God knows what's happening to me, and He knows uh, that this that this is happening, and, and He's in control. Uh, like Job, uh, the Lord give it, the Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What else am I going to do? Job, uh, Job's wife says, "We'll just curse God and die," because in that day, they I, apparently there was some uh, some thought that if you were to speak God's name and curse His name, He would kill you. And so, probably out of compassion and out of uh, out of uh, watching her husband suffer her her wife says why don't you just throw in the towel quit fail but at least you won't have to go through this anymore and so she says curse god and die and he goes you speak like a foolish woman that's when he said the lord gives the lord takes away blessed be the name of the lord now for 40 chapters we see that job doesn't perfectly pass every test but overall job passed the test Uh, because from our perspective we got to see that God was uh, proving, not just to Job, but proving to Satan that Job's not in it for what I give him. Job's not in it for the promise Iris, that, that, uh, that uh, he assumes he's going to get. He's in it because he's my servant. He's here for me, not for what I'm going to give him. And Satan had to learn that, that uh, through Job's suffering. I can endure, James says. And if I endure, he says that there's a prize. There's a reward. He says that he will receive the crown of life. And notice that it says that, uh, that it's, it's promised to those that love him. And this is not a royal crown. What we might think of as a crown that a king would wear that is uh, given to you because of uh, the family you by chance were born into. And it is, and it is not for a select few. It is, uh, it is a victor's crown. And it is for anyone who chooses to endure and persevere. Which means... As one said, one man said, this is not for those who strive harder or succeed better than the rest. This is for anybody who just says, you know what, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to stay with it. I might not look very pretty doing it. I might look like uh, I might just barely hang in there and, and be hanging on by my fingernails when it comes down to the end. But when it comes down to the end, I'll still be hanging in there. And, and, that's, and that's what this, uh, this crown of life is, is for. Uh, and, and that's what God promises us. And in the middle of testing and trial, uh, this is our perspective. As we saw uh, the three themes in James in the first passage there, uh, we see those themes are repeated here. But uh, this, this eternal perspective, where am I supposed to be focused while I'm in the trial? On the trial itself? If I'm focused on the trial itself, I'm going to do whatever I can to get out of it. But if I'm focused on what the trial is going to produce... Uh, the opportunity that that test is going to present me, then I am going to stick it out because I realize there can be good come from this. In fact, I can be better off than I was before the trial if I stick it out. But if I quit now, I suffered for nothing. It's kind of like the man who was going to swim a mile and he got halfway and he got tired and turned back. 
why not just stick it out? You still had to, you, you suffered for nothing. I went through all this for nothing. I, I, I don't like it, definitely, but I like the way I feel. Uh, those of you who, who exercise on a, on a regular basis, and I'm talking about getting off your recliner and going to the couch and calling that cardio, but I'm talking about when you really, when you really do something, you probably don't look forward to doing that thing every time, but you sure are glad you did it when you were done. At least for me, I'm glad I'm done. And, and, and I hate that looming over me, oh, i got to work out today, i got to do this thing today. I don't like that, but as soon as I'm done, I'm like, you know, I'm glad I did that. That's good. I feel I feel pretty good. I'm gonna go have some ice cream now and, and counterbalance everything I just did. Uh, but you know, I, I'm going I'm going to uh, I'm not going to enjoy even going through it. Sometimes, sometimes I'm like, man, this is taking forever. And I look, and yeah, it's really just taking forever. And I just want to be done. But I look and I say, I'm almost there. I'm almost at the end. And 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 look, here's here's what could happen. If I keep working out and, and those, those people that if you have coaching or if you just, you know, been working out or exercising or dieting, or whatever maybe, they tell you, you know, measure and take pictures of progress so that maybe you can't see the benefit presently, but you can look back over time and see good has happened because I have stuck with it this long. I think I can stick with it a little longer. And that's what James is saying. Uh, this is our perspective. And in a physical, uh, or in an earthly sense, when we're going through tests, if we can move our focus, our perspective heavenward, and we see the eternal benefits, we see the eternal uh, uh, opportunities presented, then it helps us to say, you know what, okay, I can deal with this. I can push through. I can last a little bit longer. I don't know how much longer I can hold on. I don't know if it's going to be 10 years I can maintain this, but I can do today. And I can do the next day. And I think I could probably even make the next day. And I push on and every day I make, uh, I make progress simply by enduring. Again, it's not always pretty, but I am enduring. But here's my second option, in case you're not really happy with the first option. I can give in to temptation. Or in other words, I can fail to test. Now, in failure, the natural reaction is to blame someone else. And that's what James uh, addresses right away in verse 13. He says, now, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither tempteth he any man. In the beginning in verse 13, we see the context of these testings change. Uh, for the first part, uh, we saw the, the tests are outward and external. And these were things that build patience and now we see them shifting, and now the temptation he's talking about are actually coming from within. As we'll see, as we've read already, but as we'll, we'll unpack a little bit, uh, the first part was talking about things that happen to me. I fall into various trials. I'm, I, am, I, am, I, I am affected by the outside things. But now he's going to switch gears and talk about the other side of trials. These are trials that don't happen from outside. These are the things that happen from the inside, and they work their way out. These are uh, inward desires of the heart that lead me to sin. Not necessarily sinful desires, but desires that can lead to sin and death. And James stresses right away that God cannot be tempted with evil, and therefore when you are being tempted with evil, you can't say God's doing this to me. It is true that God does test us. It is not true that God tests us with evil. And that's what James is trying to explain. Because he cannot be tempted with evil, 
and therefore he does not tempt anyone to do evil. Think about it this way. When God tests us, which He does, it is not to make us fail. When God tests us, He's not trying to hurt us. That would be evil. So God is not trying to hurt me when He tests me. Rather, He is trying to perfect me and make me more useful for His purposes. Or you could say that God tests me to bring glory to Himself. Isn't that why I exist in the first place? To bring glory to God? And so when in my perfection... I'm bringing glory to God. In my completion, as I grow as a Christian, it brings glory to God. In my failure, does that bring glory to God? When I quit and walk away and say, that was too hard. God doesn't get any glory from that. God is not honored by that. And so why would God cause me to fail? Why would God put something in my life that is going to cause me to fail if it's not going to bring any glory to Him? Failing the test does not accomplish God's purposes, and therefore God does not want me to fail the test. That means that God is not going to put something into my life that I'm going to fail because I just simply couldn't do it. That's what James is saying there. Uh, in, he's saying don't, don't, don't think that this temptation, this inward, this thing that's going to lead you to sin, lead you to fail, don't say God did this. And God, where's, well, if God is, knows everything, why did He give me two, more than I can handle? And we have to understand the two different temptations or two different types of testing that He's talking about to really get it. But what James further goes on, He says, in fact, and we're going to skip ahead a little bit and then come back to it, in verse 17, He says, not only does God not give bad gifts or evil gifts, He gives good gifts, and that's all He gives. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He's saying there that, that, uh, that, that uh, i lost my place here. Uh, if, if God is the one who sends good gifts, then God can't be the one who sends bad gifts. Why? Because God is unchanging. Look, notice how he describes God. He says here, He is the Father of lights, with, in, with whom is no variableness. There is no varying. There are no good days and bad days with God. God doesn't have Mondays. Like we have Mondays. God doesn't wake up and just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. I'm just not feeling it today, folks, humans. I loved you yesterday and just not, you know, it's just Monday. That's not how God operates. God doesn't, isn't affected by change. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. And that's what he's saying there. He says there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I like the, I like the imagery here as he talks about the Father of lights. When I think about the great light that we have, it's the sun. What does the sun do? Well, some days it's really hot. And some days, it's like it's not even there. If you ever lived where I've come from, uh, in Washington, we don't live with the sun most of the year. And when it pops out, it's like Haley's Comet. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, look at that. What is that thing up there? And you see a lot of white, uh, pasty, uh, 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 almost albino type people because we don't see a lot of sun, you know, and, and, and it's cloudy all the time, and then poof, there it is, I'm like, whoa, what is that? And people are outside, and people are, people are, are trying to soak it all up. Uh, yesterday, uh, just in, and you know, how many times did the clouds cover up that sun? And then it would come back out, and we, there, there, there's the sun, it's just not always there. And he's saying he's the father of lights, but unlike the sun, there's no variation. We think about the way that the seasons 
of, 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 the, of this earth are affected by their proximity to the sun. In the summertime, the sun's out there a whole lot more often, and it's hotter. But in the wintertime, and that sun's only out for a little while, and it's not as warm. But with the Father of lights, it's not like that. There is no variableness. There are no seasons of, well, you know, God is really God today, and this is the winter time. He says, neither is shadow of turning. There's this, this, this changing, this idea of changing and varying. God is unchanging. And so if every good gift comes from above, and that comes from God, and this is the same God who can't change, then that means that God can't be the one who brings the evil into my life. And James is very, he's hitting this uh, several times, uh, apparently because in that day, and even in our day, we have people who say, you know what? God has brought this evil upon me. I just can't help it. God did this to me. It's God's fault. Now, we normally don't blame anybody when we succeed. So this has to be coming from someone who's failed. Why did you fail? Well, because God. Why did you, why did, wh- wh- you couldn't hang in there? No, God did this to me. God caused me to, God caused me to do, He put this in my path and there was no way I could have overrun it. I want you to think about it uh, this way. Temptation is designed for my failure and it's clear that God doesn't want me to fail in that He gives me wisdom in order to succeed. We saw that verse yeah, last week, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Why am I asking for wisdom? Because I don't know what to do in the middle of my trial. And God says, if you ask me, I'll tell you. I'll tell you how to succeed. So why would the God who wants me to succeed and even helps me along the way put it in the first place that I'm never going to pass anyway? That doesn't make sense. It's got to come from someone else. Think about the, the, the Garden of Eden, okay? When God created the world and God created everything in the world, and we read Genesis 1, and we read those first few days of creation, how does God summarize all of His creation? Do you remember? It says He said it was good. Everything. In fact, the only thing, or the first thing that God said it was not good was that man would be alone, and He immediately said, I'll create him a, I'll create a woman. I'll create someone to fix that thing that is not good. Everything was good. Now, was there rules in the Garden of Eden when God said everything is good? Yeah, there was just one, but there was a rule. It was don't eat that tree. That tree was good. Adam and Eve were good. There was no evil. Yet, they failed the test, didn't they? They went to the tree. They ate the fruit. But that wasn't from God. God didn't say, you know what, I want to, I want man to slip up. So I'm going to put that tree there and I'm going to entice them. God said, hey, Adam, come here. This tree right here, don't touch it. It's like the, these, the, 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 the idea of parenting. When you, have, when you have small children, some people will say, I'm never going to put anything out that my kids can touch that I don't want them to touch. Or you can just teach your kids not to touch those things, right? Don't touch it. What is going to happen? I'm going to smack you in the hand. I'm going to do whatever. Uh, don't touch it. Uh, that's what God did. I had a parent come to me one time and tell me uh, we had this, um, we had this uh, system within our school where um, part of the subjects, the students would have to grade their own um, checkups and stuff, work. Uh, not the test, but the actual work. And then when they got to, they finished it, it was kind of a self-paced type of a thing. And uh, this one student uh, kept failing all of her tests. And so we started looking back and we found it because she was cheating. Because she wasn't actually doing the work, 
She was just waiting until she could find the answers and then just copying the answers. And then when it was time to take the test, she had no clue what was going on, so she failed the test. And so I had to talk with mom about that. And I'm like, listen, you know what? We need to, we need to figure this out. And you know what? Mom's, mom's solution was, it's your fault. You're setting her up to fail by making her do this. You're making her be responsible and you're making her have to do the, 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 the test uh, and, the, and the scoring and all that stuff. And, and that's just, that's not, that's not fair. You should be doing that for her. And immediately I think of, I think of God, okay? If God, uh, is, it, is it fair to blame God when I sin? If God, why don't you just remove all the sin from the world then? God, why, if you didn't want Adam and Eve to, to eat the fruit, why didn't you just take the tree away? Why didn't you build a big fence around it? Why didn't you uh, stop them before they even took the fruit? But see, there's, there's, a, there's a blame game going on there. Do you, do you see that? And, and with, with Adam and Eve, everything God created was good, even that tree. Why did they eat the fruit? Genesis 3.6 tells us because they wanted to. They chose to. It says that when Eve looked at the fruit after she began to listen to the serpent, she looked at the fruit and said, that looks pretty good. And it said it, des- and it was desired uh, to make one wise. There was a lust there. There was a desire there that, yeah, that does look really delicious. And that does look like it would probably have some benefits for me. And even though God said I shouldn't, I want to. And so she ate it. Why did Adam eat the fruit? Because his wife gave it to him. Did she shove it in his mouth? No. He chose to. We never sin because we accidentally sin. We sin because we choose to. So whose fault was it that Adam and Eve sinned? Was it Satan's? Well, he was at fault because he tempted them. But did God punish Adam and Eve? Yeah, because it was their fault. So when I am in the midst of temptation, and we're going to look at this idea of temptation for the rest of our time here, I have to ask the question, who's to blame? First, and the first, My first option was God, and, and James says, no, it can't be God. He can't be tempted with evil. He only gives good gifts, and he doesn't tempt any man. So who's my next option? Do I blame Satan? Do I blame my parents? Do I blame you for not being there to support me? Do I blame... Uh, the Bible? Do I blame my wife or my kids? Or Who do I blame for this? You ever heard that old phrase, well, the devil made me do it? That's a good cop-out, but it's not true. The devil can't make you do anything. Who's to blame? James tells us right away. He doesn't really pull any punches. Verse 14. But every man is tempted. All right, here it comes. How am I tempted? When he is drawn away of his own lust. His own lust. Every man is tempted because of his own lust. That We could use the word desire there. There lies within me the very lusts and desires that can bring about sin and death and failure. Within me is an attraction for things. Period. Some of those things are bad. Things that I shouldn't have, okay? For instance, how many of you absolutely love chocolate? Would you raise your hand? You love, I mean, you're a chocoholic. You would cut off your right arm for a Hershey Kiss kind of thing. All right. And then there are a few ones out there. How many of you don't really care for chocolate? We're going to pray for you. But, you know, there's people that just don't, you just don't care and you think, how can that be, right? For those of us who love chocolate, I'm a chocolate person. We look at them, how could you? We, we had some, we, had, we, still, uh, we still have their the friends, but uh, this couple, 
she absolutely loved chocolate. That was her thing. And her husband, he wasn't really into chocolate. He'd rather have chips. Like, how could you even make that choice? Uh, but that, that's what he would do. He wanted something salty, something, sh- uh, something uh, savory. And, 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 but she loved making chocolate. And guess who was the baker in the family? So he didn't, he didn't, you know, he had to eat a lot of chocolate sometimes. But when you put chocolate in front of somebody who doesn't really care for chocolate, is it tempting? Those of you who raise your hands, I don't really care. If I make a delicious uh, batch of ooey gooey chocolate chip cookies and I put them in front of you, is that tempting? I don't really like them. No, no big deal. But if I put them in front of someone who really, really, really loves chocolate, now we're talking a different game, right? Now it's now we're we're exercising self-control. We're putting a napkin over it, walking away, trying not to smell it, and eventually eating the whole plate. Why? Because there's a desire there. Okay, that's a that's a desire that each of us that we we all have desires, but they're not all the same. And within me lies sinful desires. And desires that aren't necessarily sinful, but lusts that attract me and don't always attract other people. Each of us are different. There are things that can draw me into sin that you don't deal with. Things that are, uh, 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 that are enticing to me. Things that I have to, I struggle with to make sure that I don't give in to those temptations that for you, they don't, they don't matter. And there are things that some of you struggle with that the others of us, we don't struggle with. For instance, if you used to be an alcoholic and you're trying, uh, uh, alcohol has a certain lure to you that for someone like me, it doesn't really, I never had it. And it doesn't look, when I'm hot and sweaty, I don't want a cold one. Unless we're talking about, you know what I really want? I want water. I want tea. You know, I don't, I don't want, I don't, I don't need a, a, a thing of alcohol or whatever. When I want to have a good time, the temptation is not there for me to go and, and do uh, things that other people might necessarily think, oh, this is what I have to do to have a good time. And there are, there are a, a whole slew of temptations that not everybody is, is tempted by. You know, uh, deaf people don't have problems with gossip. They don't have problems with listening to the wrong things. Blind people don't have a problem with pornography. We're all tempted in different ways. And it's all based on our own lusts, my own desires. And notice what he says about these desires. These desires I really can't do anything about. But I can do, I, I can't make them go away. But here's what happens with desires. Verse number 14. But every man is tempted. So this is how temptation comes. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. It's a fishing metaphor here hunting metaphor. Those of you who like fishing and hunting, you you understand. Did you know that every fisherman is a liar? That's what you do when you fish. You lie to those fish, right? If you were an honest fisherman, you would simply drop a hook in the water. You say, I am here under under no false pretenses. I am here to catch you. But you don't do that because you don't catch fish that way, right? What do you do? You put a lure on there. You put something that that fish will want to have, and you make it wiggle, or you make it swim, or you make it do something to make the fish think that it's what he really wants. And you're playing with his desires until he snags that thing and realizes this isn't a worm, or this isn't a fly, or this isn't what I thought it was, 
this is going to kill me. You're, you're practicing luring and enticing them. And that's what, that's what uh, happens with our own lusts. Something is dropped into the water around me and it's something that I really like. If you're a fisherman, you know that certain fish don't like certain, certain bait, right? And even certain times of the day. So you have to learn what that specific fish likes and that's what you use to catch him. And that's what happens with us. We have desires and things pop up. And for some, it's like, I don't really, I don't really like that. I don't care. That's not a big deal for me. But then, oh, I like this over here. And what happens? He says that temptation comes when we are drawn away. We are enticed by our desires. But notice what happens when that, when that, when that takes place. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Another metaphor here. It's this idea of birth, giving birth. Lust conceives and eventually delivers or bears sin. And sin then uh, bears its own child, the child of death. Lust brings sin, and sin brings death. James says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. What's he talking about? He's talking about this idea of. What's going on with your temptation? And who's to blame for these things? And this whole idea here is saying, in testing, uh, as, as we try to figure out what to do, as we've been trying to figure out since verse 1, what do I do? God says, well, the first thing you can do is ask for wisdom. But here's the other thing that you can do. Uh, as you're being tested, as you're under that weight, as you're trying to endure, something enticing comes along. And you say, oh, that, that looks a whole lot more fun than what I'm doing right here. This is hard. This is not fun. And I would rather eat a cookie. And if I go along with temptation, James says, be sure then that with that temptation, sin will come and eventually death will come. John Calvin said, there is within us the root of our own destruction. So whose fault is it when I sin? When I fail, I walk into the bathroom, I flip on the light, and I look right at the man in the mirror and say, I'm blaming you for that one. It's not as fun. I'd rather point the blame at someone else because it takes the, the, the pressure off of me, but honestly, what, God, what, what, what James is, is teaching us here is that when I sin, it's my fault. So now the question comes back to what do I do in the middle of a trial? We've been trying to answer that question for the whole of, of chapter 1. What do I do in the middle of trial? I can either yield to the temptation which leads to sin and death, or I can ask God for the wisdom to endure. Now, we looked at that in verses 4 and 5, but we see it again in verse number 17. This is interesting. I'd never seen this before until I really started studying the words here. Verse 17, we looked at this already, but look at it again with me. Every good gift, notice those adjectives, good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Now we understand that we're talking talking about God, right? Those indicate and draw my attention back up to verses 4 and 5 that talk about how that enduring or patience perfects. Perfect gift. Enduring perfects. And notice, what does God do in verse 5? If I am needing wisdom, He gives it. 
We call that the gift of wisdom. And that's what God says here. Maybe one of the greatest gifts that God gives me in the middle of a trial is the wisdom that I need to know what to do. He describes these gifts as good and perfect. So the choice then is up to me. What am I going to do in the middle of my trial? I can succeed or I can fail. It's my choice. I can endure or I can be enticed. It's my choice. Or eventually the choice is I can choose to live or choose to die. Even verse 18 talks about how that God uh, of His own will brought me into His family. This is this is this even continues this idea of this birthing metaphor because it says He begat us. Again, God doesn't want me to fail. He brought me into His family. Why would He want me to fail? Why would I want my own children to fail? Not His fault. It's up to me. I'm going to run a race. I can decide, you know what, I'm going to keep running. Or I can quit and sit down on the side of the road. I can get under that weight and I can push it up and I can keep doing it. I might have to go a little slower than others. I might have to take some of the weight off that other people can maybe do it better than me. Maybe some people can do it stronger than me. Maybe some people can just make it look easier than I'm going to make it look. But the choice is, am I going to do it or am I going to leave it and say, you know what, I would rather... This is... This looks more fun right now. You know that guilt that you feel after you've eaten the whole tub of ice cream or the whole plate of cookies? You never really intended to do that. You just wanted one and then the other one. And then after a while, you're like, but there's only one left. I might as well eat that one too. You didn't start out that way. You started out with, ooh, someone's making cookies. I think I'll pay attention to what's going on in the kitchen for a moment. Then Oh, that one looks good. There's a That one's a broken one. You, you do that? You, you play these games with yourself? That's a broken one. No one wants to eat a broken one. I'll take care of that. Oh, but now there's another broken one. We start breaking cookies in half, so we keep seeing broken ones. Man, I'm doing my family a favor by eating the broken ones. And you know what? I don't. They don't need the extra calories. And I don't want my family to get unhealthy and sick and fat, so I'm just going to take one for the team. <laughs> We start, and eventually we find ourselves out of it completely. It's not as fun to endure. It's a whole lot of fun to stuff your face with cookies. That's why the Bible talks about the pleasure of sin. It is, if sin was not fun to do, none of us would do it. Right? We sin because it's fun. Why do you sin? Because I had fun doing it. I didn't have fun at the end of it. Sin is enticing. If sin was like eating broccoli, we wouldn't really need a whole lot of uh, instruction on how to avoid sin. Because nobody has a problem overdoing it with broccoli. Right? It's the other stuff. It's the bad stuff. Janny has a problem overdoing broccoli. and She is so much better than I am for that. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's how life is. And that's how the Christian life is. So James warns us. Each of us has within us that thing which can destroy us. So he says, beware. And trials are unavoidable, but temptations are avoidable. 
you can't avoid the trial, but you can't avoid the temptation. Or you could say, I don't have to sin. So be patient. Endure. Lastly, he says, God is not responsible for my sin. I am. I need to be wise. I need to be wise in the fact that I'm not blaming the wrong person when I fail. But I also need to be wise in before I fail, realizing I don't have to fail. I've got all the answers in the book. I know the teacher will tell me what I need to know for this test if I simply ask. I'm so thankful for verses like 1 John 1.9 because though I don't have to fail, let's be honest, I do quite a bit of it. Sometimes I feel like I'm failing more than I'm succeeding. When I fail, there is a, an option of confession, forgiveness, restoration, second chances, getting back up and trying that again and enduring once again. But I don't need to keep doing that cycle. I need to try staying in that burden, in that trial longer and enduring and keeping going a little bit longer. This is what James has to say. Now next next uh, verses, he's going to talk about how this is going to begin to look in real life. And for some of this, this is the, these passages, this is more about uh, hypotheticals for some when you get into that. Maybe you're not in that right now. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here going, yeah, I'm, I'm right here. I mean, I'm, the test is happening right now. Uh, I don't know what to do. I'm praying for wisdom or maybe praying for patience. God, I need to endure this thing. It's not, I don't know how to endure this. But he's going to begin to get real basic. He's going to start off with really the real reason we come to church. The reason that we read our Bibles. We all know we're supposed to go to church. We all know we're supposed to read our Bibles. But I think sometimes we do it for the wrong reasons. That's what he's going to pick up in verse number 19. But for this, this morning, this week, are you going through a test? Are you going through something? Or will you be going through something? The answer is yes. How are you going to respond? Did you know that you didn't have to fail it? Did you know that there is a helper? Did you know that God offers wisdom to those who ask Him? Or do you, will you rather sit back and play the blame game? People who play the blame game never really succeed in anything except blaming others.